Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, the 10th chapter. I'll begin with the 34th verse. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, None of these will lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's summertime and it's hot. And it should be time to relax a little bit. People are headed to the beach, the mountains, and the river. We sang morning has broken. We celebrate God's good creation and the singing of birds and the running of water. And besides all that, our senior pastor is 60 miles away. It should be a good time if there's ever a time for an easy Sunday, a lighthearted Sunday. This should be it. If only our biblical texts from the lectionary had cooperated. <laughs> the two assigned passages from Genesis and Matthew, they stop us in our tracks, where they should stop us. We might reasonably conclude that the life of faith would be a lot easier if these two passages were not in our sacred scriptures. We want our Bible to contain, store, contain stories of creation's wonders and birds singing and youth groups going to the mountains. But the beautiful imagery of an early morning hike in the mountains, when we put it into the story of Abraham and Isaac, it takes on a horrendous tone. Let's get then to the hard questions of faith. Did God really command Abraham to prepare to kill his beloved son? Did Abraham really respond without hesitation and pack his bags and head off? Did he lift the knife? And from the New Testament, does Jesus really state that he's come to set his followers against their own parents? Does he really mean that he comes not in peace, but with a sword? These texts are not for the faint-hearted, and if you ask me, they are not for the middle of the summer. But alas, 
Here we have them, and as you have heard it said, ours should not be a faith that takes a summer vacation. A divinity professor of mine once posed the key question, how do we tell the Abraham and Isaac story to our kids? Does it have a place in our children's Christian education program? Why did Gail and I both think it was against better wisdom to bind up Isaac on the stairs this morning in the children's sermon? <laughs> a Sunday school teacher once decided indeed to tell the story to a group of first graders. She used a felt board, remember those? Felt boards? To illustrate the lesson with little characters for Abraham and Isaac. The teacher was telling the tale verbatim from Genesis. She employed that animated school teacher's voice, bringing the action to life. She planned to pull no punches. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go offer him as a burnt offering. So Abraham, Abraham took Isaac and firewood and a knife. But all of a sudden, the teacher realized something, and she halted. The kids had eyes like golf balls. They were petrified, and some were starting to cry. Wait, wait, she cried out in desperation. There's a ram in the thicket, a ram in the thicket. Look here, at the felt board over here, a ram. God didn't mean it. It's only a test of Abraham. God was just kidding. Theologically speaking, who had the story right? The kids had the story right. The teacher backed off the hard part. The horror in the children's eyes is the honest and proper reaction to this text. It should be our reaction to the text. I'll be honest, I find this story almost unbearably difficult to read to confront, especially when I picture either of my own children so frightened by it. Worse yet, the story suggests that our role model of faith, Abraham, without hesitation obeyed God's call to go sacrifice his child. The Genesis passage said, Abraham went as far as to draw the knife against his son. I visualized that painting by Caravaggio in the Uffizi Gallery with Isaac's confused, panicked, look, and his too willing father, who is ultimately saved by an angel, but at the moment is actually pressing his son's head down. I want more than ever before to shout out with the teacher, God didn't mean it. There's a ram in the thicket. We all want to jump ahead on the felt board to the angel appearing, to that ram waiting on the side. But remember, we must remember this morning that Abraham didn't get to jump ahead. This passage is about faith so strong that the believer is willing to kill for God. Not to kill just any old stranger, but one's beloved child. He was ready to do it. We are called, I believe, to live with this story to encounter that message as seriously as we can muster on a sunny weekend. Faith so strong that the believer is willing to do the unthinkable for God as part of faith. 
text of terror. It's a phrase that the scholar Phyllis Tribble uses to describe biblical passages such as this one, in which God seems to condone violence against innocence as part of the divine purpose. Terror, of course, also conjures up for us post 9-11 violent images of believers whose faith is so strong, so steadfast, that they are willing to do the unthinkable for God. These are fanatics, we believe, and so they are. But even as we condemn fanatics for killing in God's name, how do we then uphold Abraham as our faith ideal? There is no simple answer, and if anyone offers you one, run away. The complicated answer acknowledges that the sacred texts recounting Abraham's willingness to sacrifice a son appears in all three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. It's interesting to note that for Muslims, the beloved son that Abraham offers up to God is not Isaac, but Ishmael. There's an important interfaith dialogue, a conversation to be had here, but that point for today is that all three traditions embrace Abraham as role model of faith. All three traditions contain holy scriptures condoning violence within the divine plan. The surprising th thing then is not that violence happens in God's name. For me, it's more remarkable that so many people have managed to interpret the text in more peaceable and appropriate ways. I've been privileged this summer to interview with, along with a student of mine, about a dozen interfaith leaders in Richmond, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. They embody powerful stories of faith, hard work, and commitment to live together in peace in our community. They understand that they are leaders of an Abrahamic tradition, and they are working for a common good in Richmond that brings us all together. They are also vitally aware that their traditions can easily be interpreted to condone violence. So we who are gathered this morning in Christian community are called to sit with the sacred text before we draw any simple conclusions about it. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, grappled with this text instead of jumping ahead to easy conclusions. He entitled his classic work, Fear and Trembling, reflecting the anxiety that is evoked by this story of obedient faith and God's command. Kierkegaard's development of existentialism draws deeply upon his analysis of Abraham. Kierkegaard rejected any romanticizing of either a God who would test a person in this way or of a person who would respond to God's order. Kierkegaard could understand, however, why a person would be led, in his words, to suspend the ethical in order to follow a religious command. Now, we tend to believe that the ethical and the religious go hand in hand. Those of us involved in church life believe that we are helped to find our morals here and to lead more ethical lives because of our faith. We pass the sunny cafes in the fan or the West End 
or downtown this morning to come to church for a reason. And that reason has something to do with the fact that we believe that our ethics is shaped by this community, that faith and ethics go hand in hand. But as Kierkegaard emphasizes, not this morning, this Abraham passage, not to mention the one about rejecting one's parents, puts the religious command in direct tension with standard morality, a morality that compels us not to kill, but instead to love one another. In graduate school, and let me say in advance that I'm not making this up, I took a course that had the title Sacrifice, Theory and Practice. <laughs> we students joked that we were glad that this course had no lab. <laughs> I learned that sacrifice of animals and even sacrifice of humans was not uncommon in a variety of world religions. Catherine and I recently traveled to the ancient Maya site, Chichen Itza, in Mexico, one of the new seven wonders of the world. With its beautiful temple rising 100 feet and the largest ancient ball court in the Americas, Chichen Itza is a wonder indeed. But look more closely at the stone carvings and you see human skulls, thousands of skulls, and jaguars eating human hearts. The Mayan god Chakmul was hungry for human sacrifice. Sacrifice is part of our tradition, too. In fact, it sets the context for our understanding of Jesus' life, crucifixion, and resurrection. Language about human sacrifice is not located only in the Isaac and Abraham story, but in, it is in various parts of various passages and practices in the Hebrew Bible our Old Testament. For this reason, the biblical scholar John Levinson cautions that the passage telling Israelites to offer up their firstborn son to God is no stylized call to parents simply to dedicate their child to God's purposes. Instead, these commandments instructed parents to be willing to sacrifice their first son for the glory of God, even as they also sacrifice their first fruits to God. That is the terror. That is the terror, literally the awe or fear of the Lord that was expected of Israelites toward their God, who is also our God. Some scholars suggest that the Abraham and Isaac passage becomes more palatable when we recall that sacrifice was a more common practice in Abraham's time than in ours. Perhaps that is some consolation. Indeed, for that era, more remarkable than God commanding the sacrifice of a son is God's angel declaring that there's a ram in the thicket. That is the grace of the story. But John Levinson reminds us, however, that at any time in human history, the call to kill one's own child would strike terror into any parent. Fortunately, of course, the story does not end here with the death of Isaac. Abraham does lift the knife. How, how could he do that? But God does, in the end, provide a sacrificial ram. God provides. 
So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on that mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the faith that Abraham had in God that led him to be willing to act. As much as the story is about Abraham's faith, it is really a story for all of its horror about God's role in our lives. God goes in the story from the one who tests Abraham to the one who provides for him. The English word provide comes from the Latin providere, which means to see in advance. God anticipates what we will need even if we cannot. The promise of Genesis and of the Gospels is that come hell or high water, God is with us. God will not abandon us. God provides us with love and life. The Latin providere is the root of another word, the theological term so central to our tradition, providence. John Calvin intended for providence to be a doctrine of comfort, comfort for people who were unsure of their status with God. Calvin summed up providence in this way. From our human perspective, a lot of things happen that seem to us to be merely random or fortuitous. But beneath it all, there is a level of order that God understands that we do not. We catch glimpses of God's wisdom, and at those times we should be grateful. For just an instant, perhaps, we experience a sense of purpose and God's presence. And these experiences can change our lives forever. But as Calvin says, and this is the tough part, the rest of the time, God's ways may seem unknown, mysterious, or even baffling to us. I sense your lingering questions because they too are my questions. Why would God ask a parent to sacrifice his beloved child? Just as important, why would God make the world right by sacrificing his own son that we might have life? Sacrifice, you see, is at the center of our tradition. The Abraham and Isaac story sets the context the structure for our own Christ story, a story of redemption and of faith. But why this story? Why so hard a question of faith at the center of Christian life? Isn't there a better way than to place that ultimate divine and human sacrifice at our center? These are the hard questions that I believe we are called to endure in our faith. We should follow Kierkegaard's lead, believing that Abraham also experienced fear and trembling, even as he responded to God. And perhaps more than Abraham is portrayed to have done in this short story, we must grapple with the demands of faith, drawing on our own reason and interpretive skills to discern what God is calling us to do in a world that is already too violent. We don't do that discernment alone. We do that discernment in communities like this one. 
There will be no simple resolution to the hard question of why God would test Abraham, would test us in this way. But we don't need to overlook the texts of terror that confront us in the Bible. Reading these stories, thinking about them, praying over them, arguing with them, these can make our faith stronger, but most of all, we are called to live with them. We aren't going to figure out God's mystery or God's providence, but we can hold fast indeed to our faith that God in Jesus Christ always goes with us. Amen. Let us pray. God of mystery and of grace, we are not God, and we do not have all of the answers. Draw us into a generous and peaceable faith. In your providence, may you provide us with all good gifts, even the gifts of community and discernment, so that together we would learn to ask the right questions and in faith to catch a glimpse of your answers. Thanks be to God. Amen.